Right. I'm Anne Applebaum, and I've just written a new book called Red Famine, Stalin's War in Ukraine. Perhaps you might start with, with that. Um, the There was a recent um, poll in the UK of opinions or knowledge of school children, I think 16 to 24-year-olds. Uh, half of them had never heard of Lenin. Um, 8% or so had never heard of Hitler. But the striking thing throughout the poll was just that very, very little knowledge and decreasing amount of knowledge on Soviet in the 20th century. Why do you think that is and what are the consequences of it? Well, we could begin with a long conversation about the teaching of history in British schools, which I know something about because I've had children go through them. Um, my children went all the way through you know, the, 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 the very best part of the British school system and also learned nothing about the British Empire. So um, there are a lot of gaps now in what people are taught and how they're taught is often very strange. Um, people aren't given names and dates anymore. And, you know, in a way that's good because you're taught to think a little bit more about historical events. Um, but it, the, 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 the absence of the history of the Soviet Union, um, the history of Central Europe... Um, the history of the Cold War is very striking. Um, these, you know, these these are subjects that just don't rank anymore. They aren't that important in school curricula. Um, people seem to be focused on other things, and I think, you know, you can start with that as as the beginning of the explanation that it's dropped off the history curriculum. Um, but what do you think is the, the the cause of not wanting to to focus on it? I I mean, well. There, I mean, there are several things, I and mean, one should start with the fact that history itself has been devalued. And if we're going to talk about why we don't teach Soviet communism, we should also look at why we don't teach Victorian Britain. I mean, there's a, so there's a there's a deeper and broader problem. Um, more specifically, um, I do think it's the case that communism, when it, after it ended, um, people felt oh, well, that's all over then, or that's a, ch that's a closed chapter in history. We don't need to talk about that anymore. Um, it's an irrelevant uh, past subject. And the idea that it might have lessons to teach us or there might be an ongoing impact in, in not only in the countries that were uh, occupied by communist regimes but elsewhere, uh, I think has been lost. But there's a moment when you can you can tell when certain memories of being lost from popular knowledge. Somebody once said that you can tell the age of the difference when people know what you mean when you say, you know, Clarissa Eden said that the Suez Canal seemed to be going through her drawing room in a moment when people don't know what on earth that would mean. Um, do you think there's been any such sort of clear moment with the memory of communism or has it just been a gradual thing? I think there is, uh, well... You know, it's important to go farther back if you want to understand why the memory of communism now is relatively weak. Um, and I think it's important to look at how we understood communism at the time when there were real communist regimes, um, at least in Europe, because, of course, there are still some elsewhere. Um, and, you know, the there, there's a way in which public understanding of communism never crossed certain barriers. I mean, as an example, I mean, it's a silly example, um, but one can look at the way in which pictures of Lenin or hammers and sickles appear on people's T-shirts and in, you know, in popular culture and they're used in advertising and so on in a way that you just can't imagine a swastika being used. 
Um, and the crimes of communism, you know, even as they were happening, never really penetrated into popular culture or the popular imagination. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons for that. Um, there is a reason that has to do with the way um, the left and academia once treated these subjects. I think that's changed a little bit now, but um, you know, the, the pe people on the left in this country and elsewhere in Western Europe had some feeling, you know, we can't criticize communism too much because somehow that would reflect badly on us. I mean, that was a maybe an odd sounding logic, but that's how people felt. I mean, if you were a social democrat, if you read Marx as a serious thinker, then you were very careful about how you criticized the Soviet Union. Um, it's also probably just as even more important to note that the whole subject of crimes of communism got caught up in the question of the Cold War and your and Cold War politics. So depending on which side of that argument you were on, that changed your perception of what was happening in the Soviet Union. Um, this is something you can trace over history. So, for example, in, you know, in the 1920s, um, uh, when uh, the Bolshevik Revolution had just happened, people were very... Um, even on the left, were anxious to denounce Lenin's attacks, for example, on other social democratic parties and so on, in the 1930s, as people in the United States and again in, in Europe began to look for, began to feel that capitalism was in crisis, they were looking for alternatives, their attitudes to the Soviet Union changed and they began sending teams of people or, you know, the Webbs and, you know, Roosevelt's um, inner circle would go to the Soviet Union to look for um, inspiration for Western policy. And then so you, so in a way, um, the policy of the West and the politics of the West always shaped our view of Soviet communism. You know, we never, you know, we never saw it as somehow separate from us or something that we could condemn. It seemed somehow connected to us. And therefore, our, our, whatever was going on in our countries always shaped our, our perception of the Soviet Union. <clears throat> and then I think led more generally to the, some caution around the subject of communist crimes and carefulness around how we talk about it, because somehow it might reflect on us and our culture. And I think some of that persists today. I mean, an, another point that's worth making is that there's always been a difficulty, even in mainstream, um, you know, not necessarily left wing or far left parts of Western culture in denouncing Soviet communism because some of the language that it use is uses is enlightenment language that sounds like ours. You know, they talk about equality. But we have a, you know, we, we believe in equality. I mean, maybe it's a different kind of equality. It's equality before the law. But nevertheless, we have trouble denouncing what sound to us like good ideas. Um, and that's true in, you know, you know, we're saying that somebody who wants, who has a radical vision of an equal and idealistic, you know, utopian state, we have trouble saying that that's evil in the way that it's very easy to say that fascism was evil. To what extent has this um, debate shifted as the archives have opened and our understanding has become so much clearer? The archives changed, I think, radically um, certainly the attitude to the Soviet Union in academia and in the world of historians and intellectuals, because the archives um, made it possible for the first time to really lay out exactly what happened, um, how many people Stalin killed, how he killed them, you know, the different kinds of atrocities that took place in the Soviet period, not just 
the, the purges of 1937, which we'd known about before, but the you know the, the famine um, in Ukraine and other parts of the Soviet Union, um, the attacks on other ethnic groups in the USSR, um, and and the archives, you know, ended a lot of debates. So there, you know, there weren't big que- there aren't really big questions left about who Stalin was or what he did. It's now. You know, there. You know, we now agree much more about what happened. We can agree about numbers. We can agree about um, the course of events. And I think the um, any kind of starry-eyed belief that you know there was some better civilization over there is pretty much gone in the academic world. And so the problem of memory now is is a little bit different. It's not really, you know, that uh, you know some some large part of the left is trying to you know, convince us of something that isn't true. It's more just that it's gone down the memory hole and it's not seen as somehow important or relevant anymore. And why does it matter that people are forgetting? If we don't remember what the crimes of communism were, what communism was, we also don't remember a part of our own history. Uh, We won't remember why we fought the Cold War. Um, What was that Western alignment all about? Um, what was the purpose of, of our investment in, 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 in the military, in NATO, um, in a Western alliance? Um, and the, 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 the whole sense of the last you know, 60 or seven years of Western history is lost. Um, you know, we weren't fighting some kind of mythical thing that didn't really exist or some vague set of ideas. No, we were fighting a really criminal regime um, that killed millions of people. Uh, and there was a purpose to what we were doing, and it was a good one. And I think if we don't remember that, it will be very, it's very hard for us to understand how did we get to where we are now? What does the West mean? Why do we still need it? Um, and, and what do we need to be aware of in the future? Um, just on the, the, give us an idea of the, uh, the difference of available material between your recent book, Red Famine, Famine in Ukraine, and say a celebrated word like Robert Conquest's earlier book? The main difference between my book and Bob Conquest's book is that I had access to archives and he didn't. So I can be very precise about what happened when, what was the decision-making process, and also how the famine was carried out um, very in, in detail and who, who gave the orders and you know what physically happened and how food was removed from people's homes and people were then forbidden to leave. So I, I can demonstrate that the famine wasn't just the result of chaos and neglect and collectivization, but it was the result of particular decisions taken in real time. And, you know, um, in the past, you could sort of guess that maybe something like that had happened. And now you, you can see it um, very graphically. I mean, you can read the archival documents that, that, that lay it out. Um, and that's been true. That was also true, for example, of the difference between my book about the Gulag and Solzhenitsyn book. And Solzhenitsyn's book actually largely got the outline of the story right, you know, the the chronology of the Gulag and so on. But again, he didn't have the names and dates, and he didn't have the you know the numbers of camps, which we now know, or the or the orders that were given to set them up. And I think that changes the way you can write about it and the authority with which you can write about it. Um, and so you can write about it almost in a much more detached way. You don't have to do what he did, which is use huge amounts of emotion. And um, uh, yeah, you, you can write about it, just say, look, here, here it is. Here's what happened. What, um, just going back, what, what is the, um, what do you think the, the feeling on the British left, or let's say the British Labour Party these days is towards sort of subjects you've written about there? 
So I'm not a great expert on the, the subject in the British Labour Party, but it seems to me there's a clear generational gap. Um, and in the British Labour Party, you have an older generation of people who um, in the past sympathized with the Soviet Union. Um, unquestionably, this is the far left. This is exactly the group of people who spent a lot of time making excuses for the Soviet Union and ignoring atrocities, um, who have now gone very silent about that. They don't talk about it anymore in public. Um, they've never renounced it or said, I was wrong, um, but they don't talk about it. And you now also have a younger generation who, um, you know, uh, have rediscovered Marxism and some Soviet policies, but have no understanding of the atrocities or what they led to in the Soviet Union um, and have no real interest in that, as far as I can tell. You know, if you say, well, goodness, this is what was done by Stalin and or, or even this is what was done by the far left in this country in the 1940s. And they say, well, so what? You know, this is a new era and we want to try it again. Um, and there, there seems to be a disconnect between those two generations. I don't know, um, I don't know why, um, but you know, you certainly don't. You have very little evidence, at least in the Labour Party leadership, of people who say, "Look, Stalinism was a disaster. Let's not do this again." Um, and people who do say that, people in who what we would probably call the Blairite part of the Labour Party now, are ignored.